All right, I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 327, even though it says 326 on the screen, but you'll get close. I, uh, Rebecca and I sometimes joke about how much of parenting is just keeping little humans alive. Um, there are lots of things that could go wrong. Uh, I'm frankly amazed. Uh, it's a miracle that any of us are here, that we made it through our childhood. Um, of course, part of parenting is teaching your kids how to be functioning members of society, how to sort of relate with other people, but a good bit of it, especially in the early years is just keeping them alive, keeping them fed and clothed and um, not allowing them to harm themselves uh, too severely. One of the first things that parents teach their kids when they have to cross a street or a parking lot is, is what? Look both ways, right? That was pretty easy. Look both ways. We use that phrase all the time with our boys when we're crossing a parking lot or walking across the street or something like that. And if you think about parenting, if you put it in those two categories of, some of it is teaching them how to be functioning members of society, how to be kind and polite and to share uh, and those kind of things. And, and other, the other part of it is just survival. Looking both ways does not fall into the category of politeness. If you don't look both ways, the, the, the risk is not just that somebody would say, oh, look, look at that little boy, he's so rude. The, the risk is that you're going to end up in the grill of somebody's pickup truck, right? So it's a, it's a matter of survival. And I want to use that kind of silly analogy to help us consider this morning the seriousness of the Lord's Supper. Taking the Lord's Supper is a way that Christians look both ways, so to speak. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So, question, when was the Lord's death? It was in the past, right? The Lord's death is a past event, but His return is a future event. And in the Lord's Supper, we're looking in both directions, to the past and to the future. And this spiritual looking to the past and future is not a matter of Christian politeness. It's not something you might should consider doing if you want other people to think you're a nice person. This is a matter of spiritual survival. And there's a very peculiar passage here in 2 Samuel that's going to help us see that truth. So let's read together in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baanah, and the other Rechab, sons of Rimen, a man of Benjamin from Beerath, for Beerath also is counted part of Benjamin. The Berethites fled to Gittaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. 
Now the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, Rechab and Baanah, set out. And about the heat of day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. They came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Let's pray together. Lord, um, we need your help this morning. We, uh, we know that our brother Paul said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is therefore profitable. Uh, and Lord, there are some passages where, especially on the first reading, it's a little bit more difficult to see where the prophet is. And so God, I pray... Lord, that you would give us eyes to see this morning the, the treasure of the gospel that's buried under a few layers here in 2 Samuel 4. And God, I pray that we would be like the man who sold everything we had to have this treasure. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. When I said this was a peculiar passage, hopefully reading it, you understand why I say that. Here's how I want to summarize the big idea of 2 Samuel chapter 4. I'm summarizing it by saying faith means looking back to God's past grace and forward to His future grace. Faith means looking back to God's past grace and forward to His future grace. In other words, faith is looking spiritually in both directions, to the past and to the future, to what God has done and to what He will do. Now, if I were you, and I were sitting in your spot right now, here's what I might be thinking. I might be thinking, that sounds perfectly fine and true, but what in the world does that have to do with 2 Samuel 4? And so what I want to do this morning is show you where I see that here in the text, walk you through this, uh, and then hopefully at the end you will agree with me that this is indeed the message of 2 Samuel 4. So I want to walk you through the details of the chapter and then take a step back and hopefully we'll see that big idea come into focus. So four details that we're going to see here in 2 Samuel 4. The first one I'm calling the blamelessness of the king. We see that in verses 1 through 7. The blamelessness of the king. David's blamelessness in how he has come to be the king has been an important theme in the first three chapters of 2 Samuel, we've seen David have opportunities either to take the life of someone 
uh, who, for whom it would be advantageous for them to be gone or for him to celebrate the fact that someone had died. And time and time again, he has resisted that temptation. And these first seven verses of chapter 4 demonstrate that same truth one last time. So I want to give you, this is kind of falling under that first detail, three facts that are indisputable here that we see in verses 1 through 7. So the first indisputable fact is that Ishbosheth's courage had already failed. We see that in verse 1. Ishbosheth's courage had already failed. In God's providence, the death of Abner breaks the spirit of David's rival, Ishbosheth. Verse 1 says that when Ishbosheth heard that Abner had died, his courage failed. So he's already lost any hope. He's lost any will, as it were, to be a rival to David. But chapter 3 made it very clear that David had nothing at all to do with Abner's death. He had no part in it. He was not aware of it before it happened, nor did he celebrate it after it happened. So he is blameless in this regard. So even though we can see that Abner's death breaks the spirit of Ishbosheth, we know that David had nothing to do with Abner's death at all. The second indisputable fact is that Ishbosheth was the last heir to Saul. Ishbosheth was the last, and we might add, he was the last viable heir to Saul. We see that in verse. Four. Now, when you're reading 2 Samuel 4, you get to verses 2 and 3, and the author introduces us to two men, and spoiler alert, these two men are going to murder Ishbosheth. But before the author actually describes what they did, he interrupts himself in verse 4 to tell us about this crippled grandson of Saul named Mephibosheth. It comes out of nowhere, or at least it seems to come out of nowhere. And then as soon as Mephibosheth appears, he disappears. And so you're kind of scratching your head. What was the point of that? The point is to show that the only other heir to Saul, besides Ishbosheth, is incapable of serving as king. The author is priming us to see that the end of Ishbosheth is going to be the end of Saul's short-lived dynasty. So he's clearing the way for David to be recognized as king over all 12 tribes of Israel and Judah. So when you read verse 4, and then you read verses 5, 6, and 7, and by the time you get to the end of verse 7, you realize there is no one else to be king from Saul's line. All right, the third indisputable fact here is that Ishbosheth's murderers were from his own tribe. Ishbosheth's murderers were from his own tribe. We see that in verses 2 through 3 and then verses 5 through 7. The author gives us a whole lot of detail here about these two brothers, Rechab and Ba'anah. He tells us the name of their father, where they were from, how they ended up, where they were, and so on. But the one fact that you need to remember about these two men is that they are from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the same tribe as Ishbosheth. Now, why is that important? Because let's imagine a scenario where there were two men from David's tribe, from the tribe of Judah, who snuck in 
and killed Ishbosheth? Well, first of all, they would have probably had a lot harder time getting access to Ishbosheth because they wouldn't have had any relation to him, and so there probably would have been more killing that would have happened. But also, don't you think that might have smelled a little suspicious, right? People would have said, you know, it sure seems convenient uh, that there were some people who were related to David who went and killed Ishbosheth and cleared the way for David to be king. But the point of telling us all this detail about that they were from the tribe of Benjamin is to, sh to show that Baana and Rechab are not David's cronies. They, they're more closely related to Ishbosheth than to David. And so verses 1 through 7 demonstrate, once again, that David had no part either in the plotting of Ishbosheth's death or in the carrying out of it. And then the question now is whether he is going to reward these two men for what they did after the fact. And so that brings us to the second sort of big detail of the passage, and that is the temptation of the king. We see that in verse 8. So first was the blamelessness of the king, but next there is going to be a temptation that occurs. So what Rechab and Ba'ana do is gruesome. They sneak in, they murder Ishbosheth. Not only that, they behead him, and then they travel all night to bring his severed head to David. And I want you to notice what they say to David when they bring this head to him. This is in the middle of verse 8. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Now, pause there. So far, everything they have said is true. No one can dispute these facts. Saul had certainly sought David's life. Ishbosheth was certainly the son of Saul, and this is certainly the head of Ishbosheth. I mean, so there's no disputing the fact that yes, you're, you're right, this is his head. He, he, he was Saul's son, now he seems to be dead. But notice what they say next. This is at the end of verse 8. This is when they're going to interpret for David what has happened. They say, The Lord has avenged my Lord the King this day on Saul and on his offspring. So their facts were right, but their interpretation is all wrong. What Rechab and Ba'ana have done is they've taken a broad truth about God's will. God has said that David is going to be king. So they take that broad truth and they misuse it to justify a specific sin, murder. They are falsely characterizing themselves as agents of the Lord's wrath against Saul on David's behalf. So why do I call this the temptation of the king? Because what they are doing is they are tempting David to commit idolatry. They are false redeemers. They are claiming to have crushed the head of David's enemy... What is implied in this gesture is that David owes them a bit of gratitude for how they allowed God to use them in his service. And we've seen people do this, people trying to position themselves to be sort of, you know, next in line to David or his right-hand man or something like that. And yet over and over and over, God permits 
their sin to advance his will. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to how David responds to this temptation in just a second, but I want us just to pause here and ask, how often does this happen to us? Not that somebody shows up on our doorstep with the head of our enemy, but how often are we tempted to misuse a broad truth to justify a specific sin? We're often tempted in, in this exact same way. We, we take vague statements about God's will, and we use them as an excuse to disobey what God has clearly and specifically revealed in Scripture. And so somebody will say, well, I know that you know, God wants me to have joy. And what gives me joy is this specific sin. Well, God has not contradicted Himself. He has not said, rejoice, and also, it's fine to murder or commit adultery or whatever, fill in the blank. So, He must mean that He intends for you to rejoice in a way that is not going to include one of those things that He has prohibited. Or, or we, we say, well, I, you know, I don't really get any joy from doing that thing that God has commanded, and so we don't do it. Well, I don't, I don't get a lot of joy from evangelizing or from giving or from you know, singing or what you fill in the blank. I don't get a lot of joy from going to church, whatever it is. Well, God has commanded us to rejoice, but He's also commanded us to do all those things. And so if you think it's God's will for your life to do something that He has prohibited then you are mistaken. And if you do not think it's God's will for your life to do something that He has commanded in Scripture, again, you are mistaken. So broad truths about God do not justify specific sins against God. The third detail we see is the trust of the king. And this is where we're going to see David's response. Verse 9, David responds to their misuse of truth with a right handling of the truth. Look at his answer. This is in the middle of verse 9. He says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And I'm just going to cut David off in mid-sentence there because we need to think about how it is that he grounds his response here. It's because he recognizes the Lord's faithfulness to redeem him in the past that he refuses this offer of false redemption in the present. David is not the only person who's ever done this. Around AD 155, there's this famous story of a, a Christian named Polycarp. He was arraigned before the Roman authorities. They demanded at the threat of his life that he call on Caesar as Lord. The story goes that the, the officer in charge of him was telling him, I will call the lions upon you. And uh, Polycarp's response was, send for them. And the, the officer responded, if you do not fear the lions, I will send you to the fire. I'll burn you, Polycarp. And this was his response that he gave. It's echoed throughout the history of the church. 
He said, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The words are not identical, but the principle is the same. That's the same thing David is saying here. The Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. He is refusing the temptation of trusting in another Redeemer because he's found the Lord to be such a faithful Redeemer. Ba'ana and Rakab show up on his doorstep and they claim to be Redeemers. We have saved you, David, from your enemy. And he says, no, the Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And what he's effectively saying to them is the Lord does not need you to be his henchman. So gratitude for God's faithfulness in the past keeps David from idolatry in the present. And there's something that we can learn from that because the world is filled with people and we are sometimes those people who are seeking redemption and fullness in something or someone who can never live up to the expectations. So it may be a job, money, beauty, relationships, entertainment, fitness, drugs, hobbies, you name it, not all of those things are inherently sinful, but that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is taking something or someone that may be good on its own, but putting it in the place of God. And the way that David resists this temptation is by reminding himself and reminding those around him that the Lord has redeemed his life out of every adversity. And I would suggest to you that that is a good thing on occasion to say out loud. That's what David does. He says that out loud. He's speaking it not just to himself, but he's speaking it to the people who are tempting him. And sometimes you have to say that out loud because you're tempted to take something that may or may not be inherently good and put it in the place of God and find your joy and find your satisfaction and find your redemption and find your fullness in that thing. And in that moment, you have to say out loud, the Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And so I don't need this person or this job or this money or this uh, pursuit to fill that gap because the Lord has already filled it up and He's not lacking. He does not need anyone or anything else to cooperate with Him in redeeming you, in fulfilling you, in satisfying you. So we've seen David's blamelessness, his temptation, his trust. The fourth thing we see is the justice of the king. We see this in verses 10 through 12, the justice of the king. The chapter ends with David having Rechab and Ba'ana executed. Not only are they killed, but he publicly shames them in death. He has their hands and feet cut off, and what was left of them he hangs in a public place at Hebron. And, um, you know, there's a way you could read this and say, well, how is David any better than what they did, right? Well, the difference is, as David says, they went into the home of an innocent man and murdered him in his sleep. And David is acting here as... Uh, the anointed one of God, and he is carrying out justice against sin. The point of this gruesome display is to demonstrate 
for everybody to see that David did not honor the men who sinfully murdered his rival. So he's, he's, I mean, he's quite literally putting them on a billboard saying to the whole nation of Israel, I, d- I had nothing to do with the death of Ishbosheth. I didn't plot it. I didn't pay these men anything. In fact, the payment they've received is what you can see. Their torsos hanging on a, in a public place at Hebron. Contrary to that, he actually honors Ishbosheth. He takes his severed head and buries it in Abner's tomb, which was a way of honoring him in death. So, in the immediate context, this justice demonstrates once more David's blamelessness. But I want us to think about the broader context of the Bible. David's justice here, it may not be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. But his justice toward these men foreshadows a perfect justice that is coming, that will come at the return of David's greater descendant, Jesus. What happened to Rechab and Ba'anah will pale in comparison to the eternity of conscious torment in hell that awaits those who refuse to trust in Jesus. Every sin will be exposed. No one will be able to justify themselves before the perfect justice of King Jesus. In fact, Jesus even tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that there will be people on that day who will try to do the very thing that Banar and Rechab did. They will say, Lord, Lord, did we not in your name cast out demons and do all these good things? That's what they're doing. They're coming to David. Look at what we did in your name. And David's response in effect is, depart from me, I never knew you. And that will be the response of Jesus to all those who refuse to trust in him, all those who attempt to justify themselves on that day, his response will be, depart from me, for I never knew you. So no one is going to be able to justify themselves before him on that day. Nor will anyone be able to escape the justice of his wrath, except those who turn to him in faith and repentance. So for those who are trusting in Jesus, the justice that we see here in 2 Samuel 4 this is not a, a promise of what awaits us. Because if, if you're trusting in Jesus, then this justice that deals death to sin has already been dealt to Jesus who became your sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. So this, if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Him and repenting of your sins, this has already happened. The very worst has already happened. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. This is also a promise of the fact that one day he is going to set all things right. There is no injustice that will not be set right. And so it is not to us to uh, seek vengeance upon our enemies or to try to do justice to them. As Paul says, leave it to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's our job to love others, to outdo one another in showing honor, to as far as we are able to live at peace with all people. Gotta love that. 
If you're listening on the podcast, my three-year-old son just yawned very audibly. All right, so let's, we've seen all these details. I want us to circle back to the big idea of this passage. Faith means looking back to God's past grace and forward to his future grace. I hope you can see now where I see that in the text because David is, the, the way he resists the temptation of idolatry is by looking back to God's past grace. The Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And we also see in this passage a glimpse of God's future grace, of the justice that he is going to, uh, to extend perfectly at the return of Christ. I was thinking about, about this about how important a discipline this is for us to, to look both ways, as we said at the beginning. And I was thinking, you know, the more, I, the more I counsel with different people, the more I have experience as a pastor talking to people, and the more I just understand my own heart, the more I, I think that without oversimplifying what plagues our hearts most frequently, and this may... Not be true for you, but I think it's true for the majority, the majority of the time, that what plagues our hearts is either guilt or fear. So either you're, you're looking back and you're feeling guilty about what you've done and you think there's no way that the Lord could ever love me, there's no way he could forgive me, I'm, I'm too far gone. That's one thing that plagues some people's hearts. And the other is, is fear. What's going to happen? What if something bad happens to me or to my family? What if I sin so grievously? Faith is the antidote to both of those ailments. Because faith is looking back to God's past grace and looking forward to his future grace. So here's how we can kind of summarize that in a way that we could try to apply this. Faith in God's past grace frees us from guilt. Because whatever we have done and whatever we could possibly do is covered by the blood of Jesus. Faith in God's future grace frees us from fear. Because nothing that could possibly happen, nothing that we could possibly do or could possibly be done to us could ever separate us from the love of Jesus. So faith in God's past grace frees us from guilt. Faith in God's future grace frees us from fear. And in the Lord's Supper, we look in both directions. We look to God's past grace. We look to the cross and to the empty tomb. We look to the overwhelming forgiveness and reconciliation that he has purchased for us and extended to us. And we look forward to his future grace when he will keep us by his spirit and when he will make all things new. And so the Lord's Supper is a pro profession of faith in Jesus. And for that reason, it's fitting for those who have trusted in him and repented of their sins to partake of it. Parents, you can help your children understand if they should or should not partake. As we prepare our hearts to take the bread and the cup this morning, I want to read to you from Hebrews 10. And I want you, I'm gonna, this is going to be on the screen, I want you, as you're reading this, to look and to listen for that dual emphasis on past grace and future grace. The Lord's Supper is at the intersection of those two things. Hebrews 10, 
beginning in verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened, past tense, for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what he did in the past has an effect on our present that we can draw near. Now notice the switch to future. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised, past tense, is faithful, future tense. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near future. So I want us to just reflect on these verses as we prepare our hearts to take the bread and the cup. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for the mercy you have extended to us and the promise of your power to keep us uh, till you return or call us home. And so, Lord, we are thankful today that we have the opportunity to come and to, to sing together and to hear your word, but also that we have the privilege of observing your body and blood until you return. God, I pray that you would help us to rightly discern the body and the blood, and God, that we would take it in a worthy manner, not because we are perfect or deserving, but because you are uh, infinitely forgiving and merciful and powerful. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Larry and Chad, would you come and help me this morning?